0: One, two, three,
1: four. Welcome, the crazy Chester. Welcome, the crazy Chester.
0: today has been a songwriter publisher artist manager producer a pioneer song plugger and the founder of the great escape record and comic stores here in nashville he is a nashville music institution please welcome to the crazy chester radio hour the one and only gary walker
1: thank you very much glad to be a part of this
0: well thank you for taking your time and talking to me uh, our mutual friend buzz casen who is my mentor He's been telling me about you and that you've been a mentor to him way back in the day and I said like, I need to meet and talk to my mentor's mentor.
1: Well that's that's great. Buzz is one of the great people that uh, I've enjoyed his personal friendship. He's one of my favorite people in the world and as such a great versatility as an artist, performer, musician, writer, uh, whatever uh, Buzz has, has has had a fab, fantastic career, and I'm so happy that that's worked out for him that way. Yeah, and glad to be a little bit of a part of it. Uh, I would tell you that when when I worked with Buzz, and this goes back a few years, back to I guess about 1958 and 59, I believe was the years. I believe 58, 59, 60. I believe were the years that I worked with Buzz. I'm not sure. But at that time, I think that Buzz had developed into, at a professional level, that I I've never thought of myself as a mentor because Buzz, basically, he and his uh, and his uh, fellow musicians, Tony Moon, uh, Bobby Russell, uh, a number of these people were so talented, and what happened is uh, Andre is that I I grew up as a country music fan, and. Uh, I happened to have a very exciting event in my life when, I, when there was a guy named Elvis Presley put out this record called That's All Right Mama. Maybe you've heard of that. Absolutely. And uh, this changed my world, as it did, I'm sure, millions of people. Because at that time, I was so excited about this that I was, I basically almost turned away from country music for a long period of time because I was just so thrilled with that sound and I had the great, uh, f- great uh, luck of being able to attend his first national tour. Uh, I was at Springfield, Missouri, and uh, and in going to that event, uh, as, as I said, it really changed my life. And I was headed to Nashville shortly after that. And up to that time, I'd written country songs, and uh, was deeply immersed in the country music world. And uh, I still enjoyed that, but this was an obsessive thing with me. By the time I got to Nashville, uh, again there was a series of events happened, including the fact that I ended up as co-partner, as a partner in this small recording studio. Well, this was this became the rock and roll center of Nashville, Tennessee, of Music City. We were the only people in the town that were were uh, were, were featuring that kind of music. And we became the hangout for almost everybody that was interested in that. And during that period of time, of course, Buzz and uh, and a number of other, in fact, uh, Buzz's partner, Bobby Russell, we did a, uh, my, my partner and I, Kenny Marlowe, uh, Bobby was a s- senior at Hillsborough High School. And he came into our studio one day and he had this song called The Raven. So this was very exciting to us. And so we, we produced a record at that time on Bobby Russell. We got that on Feldstead Record, and although it wasn't a big happening, it was that's a part of the early days when uh, when when there were so many of the great talents, we, we were able to be a part of their early careers there. So that's been been very exciting in my life to be a be a part of the rock and roll world there. As I said earlier, uh, one of the great tributes in my life was when I read Buzz's book, and uh, when I read the chapter on the, the time that he had, uh, was in those, ye- in those formative years there, he said when he met Gary Walker, he met a guy with a rock and roll heart. So that was, uh, was I'm really, that's a, as, as a heritage thing, I'm I really appreciative of Buzz for saying that.
0: Yeah. So you were born in Romance, Missouri on October the 7th, 1932. How does one growing up in Missouri discover a love for music?
1: Uh, Basically, I had the great fortune, again, oh, incident, I want to tell you, a friend of mine says, Gary Walker is the luckiest person in the world. I don't know all the lucky people in the world, but I'm sure that I'm in the running for that because I had the great fortune of being, growing up in a rural area on a farm, and and in a rural area, and a hundred miles from there was a city called Springfield, Missouri. And it was one of these, this was back in the early 30s, they had a local radio, the the station had a lot of local radio programs. It was a music center at that time, so I grew up listening to those country records and country songs on KWTO, Springfield, Missouri. So that was essentially my, uh, also uh, uh, listen to Grand Old Opry. I loved uh, Eddie Arnold, the uh, uh, Roy Acuff, and whatever. And in my living room was an old wind-up Victrola that had uh, Jimmy Rogers, uh, the Carter Family, and a guy named Riley Puckett on it. Are you familiar with Riley Puckett sounds? I'm um, not. R- Riley was sort of a, a of a country rock and roll person. His records were, although he's supposed to have been a country singer, they had uh, rhythm and blues, uh, no, blues dimensions in them. And that, was, that gave me a little excitement about something outside. Uh, as you know, the Carter Family records were, were that's basically old string music. The, uh, the Jimmy Rogers records were exciting, but the Riley Puckett record had dimensions in it that was unique. And I think that did have an influence in my life uh, to make a long story short, that's the music that was my life my family uh my mother sang the hymns uh, many of, we we grew up in a music family I did so uh, oh and the the second part of that dimension is there at a point that I graduated from high school and went to college, the people of my community went to. Southwest Missouri State College in Springfield, Missouri, which was also the location of KWTO. Well, in no time, I was over at KWTO, hanging around and and getting on the programs, and got a part-time job, and that led to my first success as a writer. I was lucky enough to get some uh, uh, to have some songs recorded while I was still in college. I had uh, Carl Smith's trademark song, it went number two in the charts. I also had a, one, uh, an important record with George Morgan and uh, Porter Wagner. Uh, Brenda Lee was also headquartered at that time. So I, I got the experience of getting to, to, to early in my career, uh, was, was, got lucky and got, got my foot in the door, I put it that way. So.
0: How did you get your songs heard by people in the music business?
1: guts, just by having the guts to, I was a shy person, but I had an extreme drive, and I was, see, Andre, I didn't know my songs weren't good. Uh, most songwriters, when they write, they think these are the greatest songs in the history of the world. Are you a songwriter yourself? I am. Do you feel that way when you write a song? Uh,
0: I wish. <laughs>
1: well, when I I'd say the first song I wrote, I was confident that that was a great song. It wasn't, but by my thinking so, time and time again, I believe my confidence level was the number one ingredient in my success because it gave me the the combination of the obsessive drive to want to be a part of the music world, coupled with the, with this, uh, as I said, having the guts to go out and do it, go out. Well, you know, I, if, if I remember, Johnny Horton came to town, and uh, to play the uh, Ozark Jubilee there, and so I just got I knew where his hotel was, so I called him up, said, uh, "Can I come up and play you some songs?" So I went up there and played him some songs. I've done the, I did that, dozens of times, and some of them fall in that way. Probably my best. Um, best component of, the, if I'm telling you what, if I was saying, one of the success principles, um, having a confidence to go out and try and sell yourself or your product is maybe the number one ingredient in success. I didn't know that at the time, but uh, I had this excessive drive and thought my songs were competitive, that that they were, I thought my songs were good, and uh, and and maybe the enthusiasm for that might have been a factor in doing that. I don't know. Uh, really, it's just something that came natural to me, to uh, to go out and promote my songs. Now, I've known many writers that did not have that capability of do, doing that, and so I, I think that was a great asset that I that uh, when I said guts, yeah, I'm just having the guts to go out anywhere uh, to try to get backstage to uh, to do to. To, to do this strategy to try to get to an artist or something. Uh, uh, my enthusiasm about that was as strong as the creative process in itself, I believe. Yeah.
0: And you were still based in Missouri at that point in your career?
1: Yes. That, uh, I'm, I'm talking about the years when I was in college. That would have been uh, 1950 to 53. For three years, I graduated in three years. And I, as I said, I had the great fortune of being a music center. At that time, they were the Ozark Jubilee was there and uh, KWTO was, was also producing a number of uh, syndicated shows and these would be sent out uh, to radio stations for being programming there and different stars would come in there to perform on those. So I had this constancy of having the access of people coming into town. Of, I would then go and play my songs for them. At the same time, some of the songs that I got recorded were recorded by by other people, publishers. Uh, the publishing end of it's an important part of it too, of course, the important publishers of those times were very active in, uh, in working with songwriters to get their songs recorded. So some of the songs, the Carl Smith record that I got, uh, uh, I didn't pitch myself, it was pitched by my publisher at the time man named sy si Simon uh, sigh son Scott Simon is a is an important music lawyer here in Nashville, and is Tim McGraw's manager so uh, his father was very important in the early years of my career uh, both that the Carl Smith record I got and the uh, And the George Morgan record, he was responsible for pitching to them. At the same time, the Porter Wagner records that I got and the Brenda Lee records, I went and personally pitched them to the artist myself. So it combined the two situations. Yeah. While I'm into this, I wanted to mention something before we forget it. I want to tell you, as far as this getting songs recorded, I had one story, one situation that I think is... uh, it's certainly worthwhile discussing. Uh, I wrote a song for uh, Webb Pierce. Webb, at the time, was the biggest artist in the business. He was a superstar. And uh, I wanted to get a song recorded. I, I wrote this song especially for uh, for Webb Pierce. It was called According to My Heart. Uh, I'd previously made contact with uh, the company. The Actually, uh, Webb was partners with Jim Denny in Cedarwood Music Company. And I'd been to town and I'd met with with Jim Denny and his wife, Dolly. So in making that contact there, after I wrote the song for Webb Pierce, I sent it to Dolly, Dolly Denny, Jim Denny's wife, who was partners with Webb Pierce. I said would you play this song for Webb? And about a month later, I had a call from Dolly, and she said, we're sending you contracts on According to My Heart. Jim Reeves recorded it. So I was very disappointed uh, in in not getting that Webb Pierce record. So when I moved to Nashville, the first day that I went into Cedarwood Music, I met Webb Pierce, and Webb said, I was gonna record your song, but he said, I was on this uh, on this package show in Kansas City with Webb Pierce. And he said, we went up there on the plane together and uh, said, Jim said, I've got a record session next week, but I don't have a hit. And Webb said, well, here's one. So he sings my song, According to My Heart, and auditions that for Jim Reeves on 10,000, 000- feet up in the air on this airplane, I'll, I'll always think of that that's something that I wish I could have seen. Like, I wonder what the people, the other passengers thought of this at the time. But that's how I got the Jim Reeves record, which turned out to be the most important record in my writing career.
0: So, uh, Webb Pierce didn't end up uh, recording your song, but he became your song plugger there for did. a minute. He and,
1: and in a time after I got to Nashville, then Webb did did record one of my songs later. So. I had the pleasure of having a Webb Pierce song. so, But that was, that was. Uh, it's, I'd, I'd like to write a book one time, sometime, and, and get all these stories about how these songs get recorded. I think that's one of the most uh, unique situations that ever happened. And uh, I guess it's, it's. I still have in my mind this picture of, uh, of course, Webb had this uh, high-piercing, loud-sounding voice, and I don't know whether you're familiar with his work, but he was a superstar at the time, and, and that's the man I wanted to get my record. So so I was disappointed in getting that, but uh, uh, I, it, it became a big hit, and In Time was the biggest song that I ever had as a writer. Uh, well, with one exception. Uh, uh, I was also co-writer on Walk On By. The, Leroy Van Dyke. The Leroy Van Dyke record. When I say I was co-writer, I was actually working for Lowry Music at the time as a song plugger. And uh, uh, Kendall Hayes, the writer of the song, Walk On By, came by my office and I got acquainted with him and later sent it to me in the mail. Uh, and when I got it, I realized its hit potential. And I called and told uh, Kendall, I said, "This is a, we, we get this song recorded. I said, this sounds like a hit song. I said, but it's uh, it's too short. It just had a verse and a chorus. So I said, you need to write another song. I mean, I'm sorry, you need to write another verse because we need. You know, I don't think we get it recorded unless with as short as it is. So it, I'd say a week or so later, um, Leroy Van Dyke uh, with Jerry Kennedy, his producer, brought him by my office, the Lowry Music Office, and I played that song for him. I said. Uh, well, I hesitated. I said, "I've got a song. I've got. I said, I've got a piece of a song that I think is going to be a hit." But well, I said, "Oh, I can't play you just a piece of a song." So both uh, Jerry and Leroy said, "Play it, play it, play it." So anyway, I played "Walk on By" just a verse and a chorus, and uh, they, Jerry said, "Bring it out to the, bring it out to the session Monday, and w- with w- with another verse, and we'll record it." So uh, Kendall failed to. Uh, he couldn't come up with the second verse on it, so I went ahead and wrote wrote the, the uh, second verse to walk on by, but I didn't put my name on it. I don't have credit for it. So, uh, but, but that was really the biggest record that I ever was involved in from the standpoint as a writer. Uh, uh, I might say that uh, in the years that I was in the business, the early years, I was in it as a writer and as an entertainer and recording artist and that type thing. But I really found my fulfillment more as a song plugger, a person who worked with the songwriters and sharing that with them. Uh, of having, I really found that, that I was better equipped to be a fan and try to sell their songs than I was as a talent, as a writer. So I really, really enjoyed that part of my career more than the years that I was as a writer.
0: But early on, you just mentioned you also were an artist and performer and you released music on the MGM label. How did that opportunity came about, come about?
1: Well, to start with, uh, my inspiration was Hank Williams. And would never have been in the music business had I not been been influenced by him when I was in my teens. And of course, the MGM label would, was was something of special significance to me because he was on that label. When I came to Nashville, I uh, had had a number of successful songs at the time, and had the opportunity of uh, of, of, of of auditioning for record labels. Many of the writers at that time. Uh, uh, were, were also, you know, got record deals. And uh, I had had, when I met with Mr. Denny, James, Jim Denny, as I mentioned before, he was partners with, uh, with Webb Pierce and Cedarwood Music. Uh, he was interested in my songs. In fact, I had a number of songs there. And Jim told me that he thought he could get me a record deal with, uh, with, on Decca. He said, I think I can get you a record deal with Decca. So when I got to Nashville, I went over there, but things had shifted over there, and uh, and Jim was not as active in it. He'd brought other people in, and so that didn't work out. And uh, I still wanted that record contract. So when I left Cedarwood Music, I was with them as a contract writer a while. And then then when I went out and pitched, I went out to Acuff Rose, uh, uh, Wesley Rose. Was running Agar Rose at the time, his father, of course, Fred Rose was Hank Williams' mentor, producer, and that type of thing. And so when I went out and met with him, uh, Wesley said, uh, "He said I think I can get you a record deal." Uh, and uh, so he calls up; he just gets on the phone and calls uh, Frank Walker at MGM Records, and he's talking to me about him. He said. Uh, Wesley's talking to me, and he said, Frank asked, said, what's his name? And uh, Fred says, he's Gary Walker. He said, uh, Frank said, oh, I like his last name. So that was the little gimmick type thing there. But anyway, he agreed to let Wesley produce a record on me. So my son likes to talk about the fact that that I got a record deal without the record company hearing me or whatever. So... uh, but anyway, that's how I got on MGM Records. And uh, Wesley did uh, one session on me, and uh, my first record did get some action. It was a song called Everybody's Got to Go Sometime, and it looked pretty good as far as her career at that time. But meanwhile, I got involved in, uh, uh, in an odd situation, becoming a, a partner in a, in a recording studio and I got real busy, and I that that kind of faded away, and so my career kind of moved over into a behind, behind the scenes concept. So, I pretty much gave up the entertaining, uh, writing, uh, creative end of it uh, to, to help operate that recording studio, and it was a positive thing in my life because I really enjoyed that work. I, I didn't know it at the time, but uh, but but. But in looking back at it, that were, uh, the, I, I think that I'm fortunate to have not succeeded as a creative person. And that has to do with the self-centered self, the ego aspect of it. Uh, I think I'm a happier person today of not, being, not having made it big as a recording star, I'll put it that way. Yeah.
0: So how did you hook up with Kenny Marlowe and start the recording enterprise.
1: All right. Uh, I met Kenny because I was a graduate student at Vanderbilt University, and Kenny was in the law school there, and he also was a songwriter, and we became acquainted, and one day we were talking and Kenny said, there's a little recording studio down on Broadway named Revis Studio. I'd been there, I'd been down there to get, you know, cut demos myself. And uh, he said, I think that, uh, I think he would be able, I think he's interested in selling it. And I'd like for us to consider going in and buying this studio. Uh, Andre, I have no idea why I even said, why in heaven's name did I want to be a partner in the recording studio? I have no idea. But, 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 the guy was very persuasive, I guess, and kind of reeled me in, because uh, uh, I made that decision to go with him. We brought that, we did buy the studio. Kenny turned out to be a genius as far as a natural capability of a sound person. He uh, uh, he developed a, uh, or put together a uh, an echo chamber there in this little studio that was phenomenal. And this studio became very popular particularly in uh, uh in people in the rhythm and blues and rock music and that type of thing so our little recording studio became a center for for the non country music people in town at that time and uh so that and as i said at the time that i got involved just overwhelmingly the the amount of details and stuff that had to get done that that writing and all that kind of faded away at that time so so that's how i became a studio owner
0: where was the studio located
1: it was at 420 broadway now this was upstairs over a pawn shop and next to us was a little tavern called at that time mamas which this became tootsies Tootsies, uh, later and so uh, that and, and by the way our back door opened Almost on the stage entrance to the Ryman Auditorium. So it was the world's best location for uh, for uh, contacts, you know, developing contacts in the music business.
0: And you renamed the studio when you bought yes, it? Yes, we right?
1: called it Fidelity, Fidelity Studio.
0: Yeah. And that's where you met Buzz Cason?
1: That's where I met Buzz Kaysen. Uh I don't remember the day that Buzz Cason came to town, he came into our office, or into our. St- into our studio but buzz was a name at the time the casuals he was a member of the group the casuals and uh i didn't meet him as basically i mean i met him as a member of that group and i can't remember the details of this of how how these it's my belief that buzz was in the studio one day when bobby russell came came in bobby we did a recording on bobby oh well he was a senior at Hillsborough High School. Uh, we were very excited about that record. Bobby had a lot of talent then, but those two guys got together, and and Brenda Lee's guitar player, Tony Moon, also was a part of this little group that kind of, I don't know how these guys got together there, but that, that those three people kind of, in fact, I believe that Buzz then went with Brenda Lee as, as a musician, didn't he?
0: He did for a while. That whole Casuals band was her backup band. The whole
1: band and, was, yes, yes.
0: And I think Wayne Moss was part, part of that for a while, too, uh, just Wayne, a little bit later. I,
1: I don't think he was at that time, but what what Wayne was was the, the guitar player that, that we used uh, he was this extremely creative guitar player, and he was our main guitar player, along with uh, Pig Robbins. Hargis Robbins was our piano player at the time, so those two guys basically was the core of our uh, of our recording studio group there at the time. And
0: they went on to play on all these classics.
1: Oh, man, both of them were just brilliant. And we knew it at the time. Both of them were just... just they, they were musicians that were in a different different realm of existence to the ordinary musician both of them were. Uh, so we had a lot of great experience, great time with those fellows there. Uh, during this time that we were there, uh, I think in the three years before our studio burned in 1960, I believe, Pe- my wife is Peggy says. So we just had about a three year period in there in which we worked, but we, we produced quite a large number of uh, uh, independent productions that we leased to record labels, including a number number of them on the people I was talking about. Uh, uh, Unfortunately, we didn't come up with the big hits, so uh, we were still deeply in debt when our studio burned. uh, And I had to go out and get a day job at that time. Uh, When our studio burned, we were shut down for the studio was shut down for oh several months, and they're trying to trying to uh, settle the insurance situation on it. So I had a, a growing family at the time. I just had a a new son that Greg was came into our our family about that time, and so I had to go out and get a job at that time. So I started uh, I worked as a song plugger at that time for uh, for the Lowry Music people out of Atlanta. But did you want to talk a little bit more about the Buzz Case and world there?
0: Uh, sure. What what else comes to mind?
1: Well, I could tell you the budgets that we gave uh, Buzz and Bobby and uh, Tony when they were doing the demos there, they were limited to a total of $20 per session. And so they could, so they could hire four musicians at $5 per session. So that was our deal with them as far as our budget for the demos that we cut at that time. Uh, uh, these guys were so talented, and produced, we were, the, the, the Fidelity Studio was the perfect place for them to work, because they were, they were in the development stage themselves as developing into great talents, of course the success that all of them had later was profound. and. Uh, Uh, It worked well. The atmosphere that we had there was was perfect for the development of, you know, as they made their as they developed contacts and developed as talents. And we had a large number of successful records there that I had nothing to do with and that basically they put together and that that they produced themselves. And and, uh, I think the I think the most important song that that uh, that 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 we published at that time. When I say we published, it actually ended up with Lowry music because I was representing him at the time. But the song that Buzz and uh, Tony wrote, uh, "Soldier of Love" or "Lay Down Your Arms," uh, which of course Noel Ball, Arthur's manager, no, his producer, asked them to write a song for Arthur, and they wrote that song, and Buzz likes to talk to it when he's, t- talk about it when there's crowds there, of the big uh, budget we had for the demo. It was a $20, $20 demo that uh, produced that record, which which then uh, turned out, uh, oh, how many records did that, the, the superstars, well, among others, they, they, it ended up with a Beatles record at one time, you uh, 2 I believe, recorded it, uh, Pearl Jam. Pearl
0: Jam. Yeah. yeah.
1: So I guess that's the biggest song that we had during that period of time.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned Bill Lowry, who at that time started his publishing empire out of Atlanta with people like Billy Joe Royal and Joe South and... and Ray, Stevens, Ray Stevens, Jerry yeah.
1: Reed, Billy Joe Royal, um, Freddie Weller, Mac Davis just all these superstars there with all this, and one group there together when I went to work with it was, it was wonderful. The, the experience of being, uh, being in a, with an organization that had that type of, of uh, explosive talent in it was just phenomenal. Uh, uh, it, the great, that was the great time in my life working with those guys.
0: How did you hook up with Bill and became responsible for his Nashville office?
1: during the time that we were producing these independent records, uh, we would lease these to independent labels, so I took a trip to uh, Atlanta. Uh, Bill had started this label with some other people called NRC Records, and so I went down there just simply to call on them and submit some projects to them, and they'd just come off of a uh, uh, of a big hit by Tony Bellis called Robin the Cradle, uh, and uh, so I pitched them a song called uh, Young Girls, and that was his follow-up to that, and that, through my being there and meeting with them and submitting the songs, I developed a relationship with Bill that uh, uh, I think there was a big, I I think he felt strongly about the quality of material that we're bringing there, and, and, and had a belief in me as somebody that could, could, could be a, could pitch his songs, be a song plugger in Nashville. What kind of person was he? One of a kind, explosively visual positive energy, explosive energies. a man that as far as I know, had the great personal power that everybody that met that he met, wanted to work with him. To meet Bill Lowry was to want to be with the man. He's, he's the most uh, charismatic person I've known in my lifetime. And it, one of a kind, I can't describe that, other than that he had uh, uh, that this exceptional personal power, of, of which he then used as, when I say he had that power, well, he made contacts easily in the music industry with movers and shakers, top, whatever Bill Lowry had the capability of. Uh, of making deals from the highest level, and uh, it was just a wonderful experience in my life. How long would you work for him? I think the first uh, the first phase that I worked for him was about five years, which was phenomenally successful on my part from the standpoint that he had a uh, his writers had a had a great backlog of really great material. The first year I worked with him, I uh, uh, I had two major. I got two major uh, uh, hits with uh, Jerry Reed songs. I got uh, "Misery Loves Company," uh, number one hit with Porter Wagner, and also "That's All You Got to Do," which was a top ten record by Brenda Lee. It was a B side of "I'm Sorry." Uh, I believe about five years, and uh, I left him because I got an offer. Of, to go with the New York company at double my salary. So that was something that, uh, I hated to leave the organization, And uh, but but uh, I had a growing family and I did have to leave the company at that time. I went with uh, Painted Desert and Shapiro Bernstein out of New York, which was also a very positive thing in my life. Really great people too.
0: Yeah, so at that time you're knee deep in music publishing world. And how does one that is mainly working music publishing become Sandy Posey's manager?
1: <laughs> okay. Um, the job, the, the, what I would call the overall the, the term song plugger, well that's a little limited because song plugger in itself is a song salesman that, that goes out and pitches songs to recording artists and recording executives. Well, my job was much more than that. From the standpoint that I, uh, I uh, solicited songs from new songwriters, as well as, and at that time, went ahead and produced demonstration record sessions, of which, with my experience at the studio, uh, was a, was an asset from the capability of producing, uh, I'd say, in the creative side of that, of, of doing more creative demonstration records, which result in. Better results from that standpoint. So I was, I'd had that experience, which prepared me to do that. And uh, as such, I would come into con- Well, um, n- beginning, okay, s- vocalists would come to town, male and female, who wanted to be stars, and they come and they come to the recording studio to do demonstration recordings because they've got to have something to demonstrate their voices. All the publishers at that time were spending money in demonstration sessions on fresh songs. In other words Jerry Reed uh, uh, would, would bring in a new song we'd be going to the studio and produce, produce a demonstration record which is essentially is just a small it's a it's a lesser thing than a master recording, and, uh, but often the arrangement, often the um, uh, uh, how did Sandy Posey come into this? I uh, met Sandy Posey when I went to Memphis, and went. It's a little little lengthy, but I guess uh, okay. Um, in other words, I got acquainted with a lot of vocalists too, uh, as and I would hire. I told you a while ago in this thing I played for you. Well, we hired this singer to do demonstration records for us, which that's what happened with Sandy Posey. I met her as a vocalist, uh, paid her to come and do a record session to to demonstrate a song. So uh, I met Sandy in Memphis. I hired her to go to Muscle Shoals and sing one song, just one song. It was written by a secretary of an architect that owned the building in my, in my, where my office was, her name was Martha Sharp. Uh, Martha wrote Born a Woman, and I did an demonstration record on Sandy with that. She sang the demonstration record. Uh, I brought that back to, uh,
0: was, did you do that at Fame with Rick Hall? Yes,
1: yes, we did, we did, we did. It was my, it was my only demonstration record session with Nick with Rick Hall, the only experience I've had with Rick. And he was so excited about the song that he went on the he went on the uh, on the controls at that time and helped us produce the uh, he, he knew it was a hit too at the time. When I say hit, what's a hit? Well it's a hit. It's a song that if it gets the right breaks, is is has that potential for being a big hit. But he recognized the power of it at that time too. So anyway. I bring the record back. I've met Sandy where, you know, she's just the singer that I've hired. But I bring her record, this demonstration record, back to Nashville, show it to Jim Viano with with MGM Records, and he says, I'll record her. He says, I'll, uh, uh, I'll sign her if, you'll, if she wants to come with me. Meanwhile, she went back to Memphis. She was secretary for Chips Moment at American Studio there. And uh, so when Chips heard it, he wanted to record it with her. So, she had those two opportunities right then for two record deals just out of demonstrating that one song. So, anyway, uh, uh, Chip's Records does the master on it. uh, Phenomenal. His his arrangement, his creative capabilities are beyond my imagination of how how great Chip's moment was as a record producer. Because he took this, he gave that a person, he gave it a sound and a personality and something that it was, it had potential. But he gave it that ingredient which made it a big, big pop hit record as well as a country hit. So uh, that was one of those things of getting the right song by the right producer at the time. But Sandy then, uh, we became, I don't know what to say other than we became very close friends. And because I was responsible for the song, she recognized that songs were that important and so I also supplied the next song, "Single Girl," and also found the third song, uh, uh, "I Take It Back." They were all songs that I found or, or worked with her, and she just gained uh, confidence in me as far as being—when you say a mentor, a business associate that she had trusted—and I put my name on as a as a manager, but I never had. The experience or the capability to do a good job at that. Theoretically, I was her manager, but we discussed that earlier. Uh, uh, I, I was probably more a more a mentor and a, a, a business associate that she trusted. Sandy and I are still very very close friends. We we care for each other as, as human beings. One of my favorite people that I've ever known, and a great great talent. Meanwhile, the uh, that songwriter that wrote it. Do you you happen to know, does that name strike any uh, chord with you, Martha Sharp? No. Okay, Martha went on, she wrote the follow-up to it, Single Girl, went on and had a number of other hits, and then dropped out of the music business. She became a successful writer, and that was her first hit. And then um, a friend of hers, who was secretary for Jimmy Bowen, at that time, it was with Electric Records, Electric Records, Electric, yeah, Electric Records, went on vacation, and she needed somebody to fill in for. Her. So Martha goes over and fills in as her friends at her job there, and gets back in the music business. Martha then went on to be, uh, I don't know what her title was, but she discovered both Randy Travis and uh, uh, Tim McGraw's wife. Uh,
0: Faith Hill. Uh, Faith Hill
1: and Randy Travis was her pro- two projects at Warner Brothers. So she, she was talented as both a writer and a very, very bright woman. So, yeah.
0: so how long would your like professional association with Sandy Posey last?
1: <laughs> well, two years, but it was a ride. <laughs> it was a great ride as far as, uh, she was the cash box, female, new female, female vocalist of the year, had a cash box cover. She was a Grammy uh, nominee for Female new female vocalist of the year, the same year that Neil Diamond was the male vocalist of the year. So I was in New York at the Grammy Awards, and next to me was, uh, uh, Angie Dickerson and Burt Backrack and I was riding riding the world at the highest. I was making as her manager I was making trips to New York and sometimes from New York to Hollywood. So I got a piece of the of the of the of the big time as far as with with uh, you know, as for as really having a big project. So that was really a great time in my life too, so I enjoyed that. But it was also fraught with a lot of stress. But I, I did enjoy that part of uh of, of my career of having that experience with her, uh, for, for many reasons, very fulfilling, very uh, I felt really good about the, the work that we did together. And and that was one reason that it was fulfilling to me, is that I had contact and worked with a record producer who was, uh, I actually admire the producers, record producers are really my heroes, the people I expect her and and uh, Don Law with Columbia, the Chet Atkins, all these people. The people that produce those records are the ones that I admire the most uh, and appreciated the most because, uh, the, the, you know, the, their creative efforts were really so important. Uh, so they're my heroes, the producers.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned that you took sandy down to muscle shoals to record a demo on that Just particular song now do you have any other connections with muscle shoals would you go down there frequently i'm asking this question because a lot of the people i've interviewed in past podcasts are members of the muscle shoals music community
1: okay my first experience with uh with muscle shoals came when uh there was a uh, a, a pioneer down there named Tom Stafford. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Did
1: you ever meet Tom Stafford?
0: No, he passed away way before but through Donnie Fritz and people they have certainly waved his flag. For sure. uh,
1: Tom's kind of the godfather of the whole thing down there. Uh, Tom came into Fidelity's studio with the, one day with this kid there and and he was interested in making a contact in, in Nashville to work with somebody up here and he brought this writer in and they played me a song called is a Bluebird Blue. Dan Penn. Dan Penn. And I went nuts over it. Ended up getting my record on it right away. So that's my first contact with it. Tom and I became very close friends. I love Tom. Today I miss Tom. And and so Tom, uh, the next thing that we did was the June Alexander thing. Uh, he we wanted to work with me on that.
0: That was Sally Sue Brown? Sally Sue
1: Brown. Uh, uh, and... I forget what the other side was. It was his song, I think he wrote 70 Sally Brown. Pretty was good it, record actually.
0: Was it Go On Home Girl or something like that? Yeah, believe
1: it is. Yeah. Believe it is. And anyway, uh, I took Pig Robbins down there, paid him ten dollars for playing that session. When it took all day to go down there back and whatever, so so then after that, I believe the next thing that I did there was that demo. I, I knew Rick well because he was close to the Lowry people, and 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 during the uh, what we call the DJ conventions back then, Rick would hang out with the Lowry crowd, and I got to know him well. And Rick would always say, "I need you to come down and do some demos with us." So, so I finally did that. That's why I was there. Later, I had a uh, a project. Uh, I had an artist named Duncan Payne. It was this. Uh, this folk singer and I got a deal with him for uh, Atlantic and uh, Marlon Green produced his record. So I was down there doing that period of time. And I guess that totaled my experience at Muscle Shoals. I loved it down there though. I thought, I thought it was a great place.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned Is a Bluebird Blue. It eventually got recorded by Conway and was a top 20 country hit.
1: Oh, I got the record for Conway Twitty. That was my see, question. That's, I mean, that's that's the record that I got for him. In other words, I took that record and showed it for Jim Viano. He recorded it. it was the Very first pitch. Uh, I only pitched that song one time. to 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 uh, to Jim Viano for uh, uh, for Conway Twitty. Incidentally, Jim Viano was uh, my first record session with MGM. Was uh, was with Wesley Rose. But when, they, when MGM appointed, actually set up an office down here, I did, the first, the, their representative was Jim Viano, who I believe was, well, anyway, he was an executive in New York, and he came down and he did uh, my next session with me. And the day that he did it, he also did uh, Conway Twitty's Only Make Believe. So I told people that that Jim Viano cut two important records that day, one sold over a million, and the other one 587 copies of it. So, but Jim and I became really close friends and worked uh, worked together for years. In fact, uh, he's responsible for our having our house here. Uh, his house was across the street, and uh, and we we were really close friends. And that and uh, the Sandy Posey thing came because. The reason I went over to Memphis, or was over there in Memphis and met Sandy Posey, Jim said one day, he said, I want to go over to Memphis and meet with some people over there. You want to go with me? And I said, yeah. So uh, that led to that, and uh, uh, I also, I also like Memphis, the Memphis scene, too, I like those guys over there. That's where I met Bobby Wood, was from Memphis, not, uh, I think he also worked. Uh, Oh, Tommy Cogbill too was 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 a part of that
0: group. Yeah, it was Tommy Cogbill, Chink Crisman on drums. Yeah, Mike Leach was the other bass yes, player. Yes, they were. And Bobby That's... Ammons was the other keyboard player, and Reggie Young played guitar.
1: Interestingly enough, uh, Chips didn't do uh, the the Born a Woman at American. He did that over at uh, uh, the Stacks. Uh, he the was studio. an
0: early partner at Stacks before he did American. Yes, I
1: uh, 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 he, he's a really good musician himself. Chips was just such a talented person. And songwriter too. Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And the most difficult person I've ever met in my life to work with. <laughs> That's what I've heard.
0: <laughs> and there's another Dan Penn connection because he war- wrote Dark End of the Street. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I Just funny enough, this is a little side note you might appreciate. Dan was still living in Vernon, Alabama. That was right after he had that Conway Twitty cut yep. and Buzz and the casuals would drive up to that all night diner where Dan was sitting and they were both met and and they got to talking to each other and Dan said well you're musicians I'm a songwriter too and then Buzz asked him what did you write and he said, is a bluebird blue and then Dan's version of the story well he didn't believe that the, this kid from the middle of nowhere wrote that song but anyway that was the Buzz first did, Buzz didn't believe it well, that is Dan's side of the okay. story, anyway. But so he, he thinks Buzz like, yeah, sure he did. Yeah, sure and he kind Blue, of Blue. But anyway, they became lifelong friends too and collaborators. So that's the, the beginning of their story. Yeah,
1: I love Dan's work too. In fact, I talked to Dan about a month ago, because I'm interested in you know this project I've got going on now. I'd like to get a, like to like to work with Dan on Dan on some of his songs. He's got this, uh, you know. He puts out, uh, like everybody else, they putting out their own records out these days. Yeah. So uh, I, oh, with the Great Escape, one day I saw one of his records come through, and I pulled it out to listen to it. And he had this great song on there. You ought to pull it out sometimes. It's called Funky Folks. Oh, I know that. Don't you love that song? Dan writes so good. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that's that's a hit song if it gets the right, uh, right record on it. To uh, I still I'm still excited about hearing. It song once in a while that really gives me a buzz. And, and he comes up with one once in a while.
0: Yeah, And we'll certainly get to that here in a minute, too. But after, I guess, about 20 years in the business, you had enough. What, what made you want to switch careers? Because that's when the genesis of The Great Escape came. Yes, sir.
1: What I thought at the time was that uh, I thought that I was still hot stuff. I wasn't. The music business had passed me by and it partially has to do with youth and excitement and drive because I really realized later that I wasn't. Uh, uh, oh, here's here's the reason that I left the business that I perceived was the reason that it had changed so much that politics, that the New York companies, the LA companies had come in and were now dominating the industry. And it was was in the, in the movement toward becoming more um, um, more political, more... When I came to town, it was wide open. You'd play a song for anybody, the artist or whatever. you go over to Lineball's restaurant, and if Marty Robbins was in there and you said, Marty, let me play you a song, he'd listen to it right there. By the time I got out of it, it had become... Uh, I don't know what to say. Much more...
0: Corporate?
1: Yes, yeah, corporate. And uh, I wasn't enjoying it. But the reality of it is that I didn't adjust. I didn't make the adjustments as the changes came. And was stuck in that world of, in other words, I was not able to make the changes myself as the the industry changed. And at the time that I got out of it, I don't think that I was very effective at that time and just needed to get out. And it is a young, uh, song plugging is a, is a young person's career from the standpoint that you have to spend a lot of time uh, partying, I guess you might say, spend the time being, your energy level, you, you know, lots, lots of all-night scenes at the studios or somebody's house, listen to songs. It's just something that the energy, as that, that at a time when I was plus, I guess, I'd had my kicks out of it. I guess I'd had those things that were fulfilling to me. I'd never thought it before this, but I'd done what I needed to do. I'd had success in, as a writer, and as a plugger, and even the standpoint of s- some other areas, and I was ready to do something else. Interestingly enough, I approached the Great Escape concept as much with, with as much enthusiasm and excitement as I did when I went in the music business. Uh, how did it come about if I told you about how it started?
0: Well, I read that in the early 70s, you got into the comic book world.
1: Greg was in high school at the time. And he came home one day and he said, this friend of mine is collecting comic books. He said, there's a comic book title named Spider-Man. And he said, I'm kind of interested in that. and So he started uh, buying the issues off the stands. And when I go out on trips to Atlanta or wherever, I'd go around to uh, usually the paperback book places. He used to have a lot of those that might have some comic books for sale. So I was trying to help him build his collection of Spider-Man. And uh, I went into this store in uh, Atlanta that had Comic books for sale, and records for sale, which essentially was what the great it was the it was the prototype for the Great Escape, and what they had they had Spider-Man comic books for sale at five or six or seven or and ten dollars there. I thought, my God, what you know? They, I didn't know that they comic books had value to them. I just you know, and so I became interested in the collect collector side of it, and. Uh, Got lucky again. I started uh, setting up. It was a little hobby of mine, and the fun of it was that it was the music business had gotten so complex and so difficult to meet objectives, and I thought, well, this is great. You know, go out and buy this stuff, and you come home and they pay you cash. And I can remember coming home from, you know, setting up the flea markets, and I'd get down and put my money on the floor. or, you know, the floor and count it and all that stuff. I thought, boy, this is fun. Uh, any rate, I became within a year, I, I started doing it part time, and I'd say within a year or so, I'd given up the music business, and I would have kind of the same excitement about doing that. Up. It's amazing, it's really amazing to be a, that, that, that they were kind of similar from the standpoint of I was having fun. So
0: on May the thirtieth, nineteen seventy-seven, you opened the first
1: Great Escape store. We did that at a tiny little shop on Division Street, and with about six months later, we moved uh, about a half a block away across the street to on on uh, Broadway, and there's where it happened at the Great Escape. Uh, the it started as a comic book shop. We were not selling records at all, and I still was following the music business and in, and taking Billboard, and I saw in Billboard an article about, about some of the new record stores were also selling used records. And that kind of triggered in my mind that we might add that to our stock there. And so I brought in my collection that I'd accumulated from home, and just put them in the store over there, and it was explosive how quickly we really became this, you know, after that, as far as the growth, as far as the... Uh, people, the people in the industry. What I didn't know at the time was that uh, that the advantage of our location there, uh, the reason we we started at the at the location there was because it was near the college. I thought the college people would 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 carry our business there, and and that's so we located there. As it turned out, though, that it's also in the edge of the music industry. So when we started carrying the records, it quickly became a hangout place for. People in the industry come to look for old. Uh, sometimes they become looking for some old song they want to record, but mostly they just loved coming and digging around in the old records and that type of thing. And so we became very, very rapidly uh, major, major, major movers and shakers in the world of collectors' records.
0: And one thing I like about Great Escape, and I guess, you know, record collector stores in general it's not just a place to obtain the music but it's also it's like a, a community thing to me it's like you meet like-minded people and you get to exchange yourself usually the clerks or the people working there have some deeper understanding about music or comics and that so it's like to me it's like one of the favorite places to go to just to be out
1: it was unimaginable to me, you know, 40 years later, we were celebrating last year, our 40th anniversary, that when we went out into this, that I had no idea whatsoever that that could be that valuable to people as for as a community experience, that people who came there, that it became meaningful in their lives. It was something that was, there's a spiritual aspect of it. Uh, and I don't know how to, to say that exactly, other than that the people Through the years, so many people, uh, in fact, I had no idea at that point that we moved that location down there. I had to move of the outcry that it created from the community there. It was was dramatic as far as the people's, you know, the, the, the loss that it was to the community there at the time. And so many people, it's still important in my life, day to day, of meeting people like you that you know, that it was important to, to really recognize that we did something that was really important. That in getting into, when I came to town, I was going to be the, I was going to be the great songwriter that wrote the great songs, made the great contribution to mankind and whatever. But as it turned out, the great escape was what was, was really the important part of my life in, in what that meant to, and that was true in every town, all the locations.
0: Yeah, the, the Broadway store that's not there anymore it was the first one I've actually been to. Even before I moved here, I was still living in Switzerland and I would... you oh, know, when you were, came, came, I, to, came I would go there and I would like get down on my knees and go through the dollar records and this and that.
1: It was that kind of place, wasn't it? It, it sure it, was. It had magic to it.
0: And now, there are four stores and I love the, the one on Charlotte and the one in Madison. I occasionally get to go, there's one in, in Bowling Green, Kentucky, and one in Louisville. Too. They all have a
1: little different, different of spirit to them. But, Absolutely. But in each case, we, we really have been important to the community. And, and, and I would say, as far as being fun, it also has some of the same elements that... Uh, it, 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 was, uh, it was really a fun ride uh, the, and through the years. And, uh, and it's, you know, so I'm really... It's great that I could have two careers... Both of which were really fun and and really were fulfilling and important in in living a life I feel like i've i've lived a good life as far as leaving it when i leave it i I leave a nice legacy behind me for that
0: yeah and you you mentioned last year was the fortieth anniversary, and there was quite a few events celebrating that oh, too yes. but you also decided to step down and transition the stores to some of your major employees. How did that all work out?
1: It came about because it was a transition rather than essentially a sale. That there was an opportunity for us to for that one of the employees and was a long time employee that we had confidence in. He'd been with us 18 years already uh, had always wanted to have ownership and through the years was discontent in being at the level that he was and needed to start his own operation or and made me an offer on it in fact i think that rob baker would have left the great escape and started his own operation had we not decided to sell to them so it wasn't that wasn't the issue the issue was that we had an opportunity to pass it you know through a transition and 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 essentially maintain our same staff uh, my son is still a full-time employee there. That's an important thing in our lives. Uh, the greatest, that the great escape, be successful, is an important thing in our lives. Uh, you know, you, you you can't help feel otherwise with with what it meant through the years. That there, that we still have that feeling about it and uh, and want it to be successful. Uh, what was our best chance of that both of things happening? And, and essentially, I felt confident that we could have sold it for more money to somebody else rather than, but, but it was organized and sold to be practical for them to be able to raise this amount of money and to become a transition rather than outside sale. Uh, I don't know what the future will be, but we certainly uh, feel like it has a better chance with this group of people than it had had someone else bought it. And simply, a part of it certainly was that we have uh, we have about, we had at that time 20 employees that th- had been with us a long time that were key employees that their lives, to have sold the company and then lost their job would have been incredible, it would have been catastrophic, let me put it that way. And their loyalty to us through the years and sticking with us through some pretty difficult times was a factor in our decision. The amazing thing about it, uh, Andre, was that neither Peggy or I, up until this opportunity came, had given any thought to getting out of it, or even selling it or retiring anything else. But this uh, this, uh, Rob Baker and his wife came to us, and he said, uh, can I make you an offer on the Great Escape? Which he did. We didn't even haggle uh, we didn't I, I knew at the time that that was what he was offering was based on their capability of raising that much money and hopefully to to have operating capital. so my main interest was not how much I got for it, but that it continued to be a, that the, continue, the great escape continue as long as I hoped it might you know give it the best chance. In other words give me the best chance for success and simply as I said we've got there's a, there's a lot of people in our organization that we felt really uh, their loyalty really meant a lot to us and and and, uh, and it was, would have been difficult to, uh, to, to to have sold it and a bunch of them lost their jobs, so
0: anyway. But from talking today and even earlier before we started recording here I think retirement is not necessarily something you're necessarily seeking. You, I mean, Great Escape might be behind you in that sense, but you can't just sit back and not do anything. And you already got something else coming. W- what are you excited about right now?
1: Um, <laughs> I, never get, I never got out of the music business. You can't leave the music business as far as I'm concerned. When when it was when you're that passionate about it as I was, I don't think it's possible to get it out of your system. And so therefore, even during the time that I was, th- through those years, I dabbled in it with a small publishing company. Uh, this gave me the opportunity of, once I got out of it, of going back into it uh, full time and not have to be concerned about making enough money to survive in because we had funds from sale of the great Escape and it allows me to uh, to to play around with the music business without having to have the stress of making um, at this much money by this year or whatever and so my son is also very involved in it so we're uh, we, we, we're doing some projects together which is very meaningful to us and uh, and it's just a lot of fun all I know to say uh, I'm kind of a new kid again a young kid again with it uh, I, I love and it's 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 changed so much, of course, but uh, I'm 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 excited about being in the back. And actually, we've come up with some ideas and uh, and some strategies on it that I think has some chance of being succeeded. Uh, uh, and and I'm excited about that as far as uh, as far as some plans that we have. So they're, they're they're now making some progress.
0: Yeah, and it's really great for me to see that you know 65 years into this career you're still so excited about new music and new talent and you know music that touches you
1: it's an interesting thing and i now realized in retrospect that music has been my spiritual feed and this goes all the way back to uh when I was a teenager, I was interested in the music business, and the music, and I was pretty heavily involved in it, but when Hank William, when I heard the Hank Williams records, particularly Lovesick Blues, and I'm sure that this is duplicated by a lot of other people that are in the industry today, that Hank Williams in itself alone inspired them uh, to, to pursue that as a full-time career the interesting thing about it is that when that happened to me it was so extreme as the conversion into a way of life that I never gave thought that it wouldn't be successful or that I wasn't it it just never occurred to me that I wasn't already in the music business if that makes sense. Not that I'm going to be in the music business, whatever but I started out and started writing uh, and I think that that I think the most important thing that happened to me, partially, is because was the song end of it. I was interested in the records, but Hank Williams brought a dimension to it in writing the songs. The songs that he wrote was the first time that a well, Jimmy Rogers had done it. You know, back several several uh, generations before that. But the Hank Williams thing represented something of the power of those songs that had a great effect on people. And I believe that at that time I, I, I centered on writing songs. And the songs, when it comes to music, songs are the thing that, that, that give me that go power, the energy. Yeah, I can hear, a, when I heard Humble and Kind, it, 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 it affected me positively and I went into a meeting Uh, at the store and I said, I just heard this Tim McGraw record, Humble and Kind is going to be a number one record. It was, it's, so I still have that, uh, that's, that I'm excited about the stimulation. These incidentally are art masterpieces. Uh, I enjoy uh, uh, paintings, uh, great sculptor, all of that. And I think that these some of these songs are modern day masterpieces uh and so that's uh that's a part of my thing is that i'm stimulated by this art or these what's that all about for some reason the capability of communicating universally the what are the what do the great uh, what does Mozart do what do the great uh, uh the painters do what was their thing well they were able to touch people's soul some way, soul to soul. there's a soul to soul communication type thing.
0: And it is a universal language for sure.
1: So that's what music has been. And uh, I do think that maybe it's a little unique at 85 to feel like, uh, well, to so be so shocked that once in a while people think I'm an old person. You know, they, it's clear that so once in a while Peggy, or, we, Peggy and I will realize that people are treating us like old folks. We don't. <laughs> We don't either one of us know what that's about. <laughs> so, uh, I, I do think uh, I, I do think I'm a little unique of being uh, uh, being able to rev up the uh, well, to be stimulated by it. As I said, for some reason, in hearing this little child sing the Star-Spangled Banner, it affected me and and made me want to be a part of it some way. I don't know. But uh, the, the, it, it was meaningful in my life at that stage. So, so I got a, I got a, I got a project. I got something to, to have fun with.
0: Yeah. Well, Gary, thank you so much for spending the past hour with me, sharing all your wonderful stories and your, your life and music with me. And I just wish you all the best and the best of health for the years to come and many great musical moments.
1: Well, that's fantastic. I'm sure I'm, I'm sure happy to talk about them. As you know. All of us old timers love to talk about the glory days.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this with me.